the passion of our Lord Jesus. This is the Good Friday story. Few places in Scripture are more deeply ironic than the passion of Jesus. To embrace Good Friday, to inhabit this part of the Holy Week story takes courage and a willingness not to flint, not to uh, look away. There's more than enough sobering disorientation. There's more than enough abject shock and there's more than enough grief to go around on Good Friday. I can only imagine the questions that haunted the disciples on Good Friday. What happened? What happened? Was Jesus who he said he was? Were we fools to believe? Is it all just a lie? What have the last three years with him amounted to, if anything? God, where are you at the heart of it? Now, we know those painful ruminations of the soul. Those things beset us and they beleaguer us in our darkest of hours. Good Friday is the death of all human hopes. In Gethsemane, the light faded dramatically and confusion and betrayal and human avarice and deception took center stage. But Gethsemane was only the beginning of the road. Golgotha was in the distance and Jesus knew this. He set his face like flint and he embarked on that road to Golgotha and beyond. And where he was going, no one could follow. On Good Friday, Jesus heads for a distant horizon that we cannot see. We come to the end of our understanding. We come to the very end of ourselves and God goes out of sight. And there's no denying that or reframing that on Good Friday. It is what it is. Jesus journeys into the belly of the beast, literally. And we lose sight of him. So on Good Friday, the story is that things go dark. Things fade to black. That is the Good Friday story, the darkest night of the soul. The story that Paul just read, the passion of our Lord, is terse. As a matter of fact, You'll notice John doesn't give a lot of commentary. I don't think he needs to. I think the actions and dialogues speak for themselves. What people do or don't do. And what they say or don't say. On the surface, Good Friday plays out like a tug of war between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. With Jesus caught right there in the middle. A strategic power struggle. Will Pilate keep the peace? Will the Jewish leaders get their way? Have Jesus executed? It is a battle of wills. It's a battle of influence and politics. It's moves and counter moves. And Jesus is right in the middle of that. Pilate, as you read the story, he proves to be political, indecisive, superstitious, uh, seemingly sympathetic to Jesus at moments, also somewhat guilt-ridden. The Jewish leaders are savvy. They're unyielding and they're murderous. They have done their homework. They know what they're doing. They can't crucify someone. They know this. It's against Jewish law. So what they want to do is force Pilate's hand. They want him to do their dirty work. So they use the threat of treason to corral Pilate into a very difficult position. They do it this way. They pit Jesus against Caesar. Uh, Pilate, who's the king? We have no king but Caesar, they tell him. Proving that they're either lying hypocrites or that they're idolaters who disowned God and broken their own commandments in doing so. 
the Lord is supposed to be their king. He was very clear about that. So they prove loyal to their own interests. So Pilate is left with a dilemma. If I allow a self-proclaimed king to live, that will be construed as treason on my part. And his boss, Tiberius Caesar, was pretty well known for being paranoid and ruthless in his punishment of traitors. So while he finds no guilt in Jesus, he doesn't have the courage or the conviction to defy the will of the people. He's most concerned with keeping the peace and maintaining his political reputation. So while reluctant to sentence Jesus, he ultimately proves to be yet another shrewd, pragmatic politician out to save his own skin. And in the end, he acquiesces and he gives in. He capitulates. And he leaves the responsibility with the Jewish leaders in the crowd they've incited. Literally, he washes his hands. You remember this scene? It's not in this account. It's in other accounts. Literally washes his hands and abdicates his responsibility. Not my fault. And he says, you take him and crucify him. I find no basis for a charge against him. This is said very emphatically. Shifting the blame. Not my problem, not my fault. It's your fault. In the end, neither Pilate nor the Jewish leaders will take responsibility for Jesus' dissonance. No one will take responsibility. No one. And what a great injustice this is for anyone to take someone's life while you simultaneously deny you're responsible for doing it. So John tells us on the day of preparation, Jesus, the true Paschal Lamb, is sacrificed. At the same time, the Passover lambs are being offered and sacrificed in the temple. This is the Good Friday story. But to be clear, Jesus does this willingly. He chooses to go to Golgotha to be crucified. He chooses to drink the cup of suffering that is set before him. He doesn't forego it. Jesus was not a victim who was coerced. Jesus was a willing volunteer. And his suffering was far beyond, I think, our capacity to imagine. Jesus was mocked. He was spat upon. He was dehumanized. The abuse heaped on Jesus was not just physical. It certainly was that. But the entire process of execution, which the Romans engineered, was meant to shame someone and dehumanize them, to break them down. It was more than just about the physical pain. Shame is about that. It's about humiliating the person. That's what the crown of thorns is about. That's what the hail king of the Jews, that's what spitting on him is all about. He was mocked, he was spat upon, he was dehumanized. And he was tortured before he was crucified. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was roughed up by the Roman soldiers. He was beaten with a whip that had pieces of metal and bone embedded in it. When you were flogged this way, it turned your back into this bloody pulp of exposed bone and sinew. It left literally these bloody strips of skin hanging off of your back. Exposed bones, sometimes literally internal organs. It was, it often killed you. It didn't kill Jesus. So he's tortured, he was beaten, flogged. After this, Pilate presents the bloody and bruised and half-alive Jesus. He says, behold your king. Some accounts, behold the man. Here's your man. Here's your king. Speaking more than a little ironically. Look, this bloody and weak and pathetic Jesus, this man, this is the man you're so frightened of? Who's so dangerous and threatening? Really? He's harmless. Behold your king. Behold the man. 
And Pilate speaks more than he doth know. I don't know if he's meaning to be ironic here or not, but he is. Because Jesus is the unrecognized, the unseen, and the rejected king. And he's sentenced to death. Jesus is forced to carry the own means of his execution on his back. To carry his cross. Again, insult to injury. This was the Roman way too. But he's too weak to make it very far. Probably because of the flogging. So someone else carries his cross to a location outside the city walls, outside the town. Called Golgotha. Place of the skull where he's to be crucified. Which is why we stood at that point in the reading. The Romans were very cruel in devising ways to kill someone while also prolonging their life and prolonging the suffering. They would put a nail through each forearm, here, here, and through the ankles, and they put a piece of wood under the hips. And they did this so that victims would survive for hours, sometimes even days, as they baked in the sun, the desert sun. And basically, they choked to death. You'd hang by your arms, you'd try to push up with your legs, and your diaphragm was collapsing the entire time. Very painful and very torturous. And again, there was shame and loss of dignity in this because you urinated on yourself. You lost control of your bodily functions, defecated on yourself. And they took great pains to do this in very public places. They would execute prisoners in highly visible places to instill fear. Don't do this or this will happen to you. Do not defy Rome and to utterly humiliate and shame and degrade those who are being crucified. Some of you have probably seen the Passion of the Christ. If you have, you remember how gratuitous and unyielding the physical violence is. I think the film captures the physical violence and suffering of our Lord well. He's marred beyond recognition in the film. Per Roman custom, Pilate has a sign put on Jesus' cross, probably noting the crime, sedition in this case, but noting Jesus' name. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, which the Jewish leaders, as you heard, are none too pleased about. They resent that, and Pilate says, hey, what I've written, I've written. Perhaps this is his way of thumbing his nose at the Jewish leaders, his revenge for having been manipulated to them. And yet, I find this incredible. Even in the midst of Jesus' unimaginable physical pain, he glimpses his mother, Mary, with the other women uh, at the foot of the cross. Imagine this. His life is ebbing away. And yet he manages to focus on her. He wants to make sure she's cared for after he's gone. Caring for your parents as they age was what a good Jewish son or Jewish daughter would do. This is what it means to keep that commandment on your father and your mother, which Jesus does. Even in his agony, he makes sure Mary is taken care of. He basically says, John, take care of my mom. Quite the tender moment. Imagine doing that in the throes of that kind of suffering. It's unbelievable. As the end draws near, Jesus says, I thirst. That thirst being part of the slow death of crucifixion in that unyielding heat. And he's given a drink to fulfill Psalm 69, 21. Until finally he says his last words. And these are the words he chooses. He chooses. It's finished. 
surrendering his spirit only after, only after he had finished his work on earth, Jesus gave up his spirit and the breath of life left him. His entire life, having been poured out like one big drink offering, beginning to end, he was faithful to the very end. His work is finished, as in it's completed, as in it's accomplished. Now to the skeptic and the hard-hearted, this was a whimper of defeat, complete failure. This looks like a complete failure. Nothing happened here. A man was crucified, an insurrectionist, big deal. In reality, it is finished is a cry of victory. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. He loved them until it was finished, until it was accomplished, until it was completed. And so our Lord Jesus dies. And soon after, his few belongings are divided up amongst the soldiers and other Roman practice. The little that he did own is taken from him, fulfilling Old Testament scripture. He lost everything a person could lose. And that is the Good Friday story. And yet, I have only described Jesus' physical suffering. It's overwhelming. I've only described that. That is only one part of the equation. That's only one piece. His suffering was far beyond the physical. Far beyond it. What's most staggering to me, even more than what I just described, as horrifying as it was, is that Jesus suffered on a spiritual level, a level of suffering we literally can't conceive of. We can't. Firstly, he bore the sins of the entire world, past, present, future. Yours, mine, all points in between for all time. Folks, that is enough to crush anyone in a nanosecond. That weight alone is inestimable. Literally, the scriptures say he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus took on the full wrath of God, the full wrath of our sin. In fact, it says he became sin, it says he became a curse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he became cursed so that we might be blessed, redeemed, and restored. How can anyone, anyone, bear that spiritual form of suffering? The Good Friday answer, and the answer for all eternity, is no human being can. No human being can. So first, Jesus bore the sins of the entire world for all eternity. Second, he did it alone. This is that God-forsakenness we speak of. I don't think any person in history has been more alone than Jesus. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, I often wonder if the Trinity was poised to snap and come apart. Jesus died utterly and completely alone. I say that because here's what I mean. No one shared in or took away his suffering. No one could. You want to talk about extreme isolation. Even Job had in his physical presence his three crappy friends. He at least had that in his grief. Jesus did not. That is a hell that none of us know. So consider this. Even if we're back in the first century, it's Good Friday, it's Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. We, we've taken, we've, tried, we've walked all the way to Golgotha with Jesus, as some of the faithful women did. 
we still cannot proceed any further. Can we follow Jesus to our deaths? Uh, Yes, we can, and some do. But even if we don't desert Jesus, even if we follow him all the way to Golgotha, we choose martyrdom at the Golgotha of our own, or however that looks, where Jesus is going on Good Friday, we simply cannot follow. We can't do it. We can only accompany him so far. The road that we've been on since Palm Sunday, it ends cold. And it ends at the foot of the cross. That's where it ends. We can't take on our own sins. Much less the sins of the world. And that is the point of the Good Friday story. Jesus must walk the rest of the way alone. And he'll do it for our sake. And he will do it out of love and devotion for God the Father. And love and devotion for us. Which are the same love. They come from the same place. This is why I'm beyond confident that when I say there's no person in human history that has ever suffered as deeply as Jesus Christ. Nor will there ever be. It was not just the physical torture of crucifixion. It was also the spiritual devastation that he bore. Who does that? God. Only God. So when you suffer most deeply, when you're in the throes of it, when you're in the belly of the beast, you can literally remember that Jesus understands. Jesus fully understands. All the depths, all the ranges of human suffering are known to him intimately. Every inch of it. So any circumstance you're in, you can literally say, Jesus understands. Nothing. Nothing in the terrain of human suffering is unknown to Jesus. Nothing. You're never alone in your sufferings. God is with you. God is for you. God with us. God for us. Emmanuel, in your sufferings. Hebrews tells us we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we were, yet he did not sin. Jesus understands. God could have written a story where he didn't have to suffer humiliation, torture, and death. He could have written a different story. Much less, he could have written a different story where he didn't have to do this in order to rescue those who had rebelled against him. (laughs) And yet, and yet, Jesus chose to experience the absolute worst the world could offer the physical suffering, also bearing the spiritual suffering, suffering that we can't fathom. Why? Why write the story that way? Why do that? Why write a story where you have to die to save the people that rebelled against you? Why do that at such a high cost? This is the answer. This is the Good Friday story. This is the answer. Because before God created anything, this is what he did. He looked down the corridor of time. And what he saw were your faces. He saw the faces of his children. He saw every single one of you. He saw your face. So why write the story this way? Why did he do it? Love. Love. God would go to the unimaginable extravagant links to show his love for us. That's why. Hebrews 12, 2. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. That joy set before Jesus, the reason he endured the cross, it's you. It's you and I. It was us, the faces of his beloved. That was the joy set before him that he saw. That's why he went to the cross. He did what no human being could ever do, past, present, or future. Why? Because of love. Because of the joy set before him, which is you and I. That is the Good Friday story. Jesus died between two thieves. Again, the irony, between people who actually were guilty. And upon uttering, it is finished, creation itself responded. History changed forever. Good Friday tells us that the story, capital S, is not over, but rather something is now definitively complete, definitively finished, and definitively accomplished. The world of flesh and the devil have been defeated, despite present appearances. They've been defeated. It's finished. Handled, taken care of, and it is finished is the cry of victory, the song of our salvation. That's why we call tonight Good Friday. And that's why this gospel of Jesus is good news. Where Jesus was going, no one could follow, but he walked that path alone for our sake, for the joy set before him, for his beloved, for you and I. That, my friends, is the Good Friday story. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.